So when Roman politician Julius Caesar first stepped onto northern soil, he made one astonishing comment about the natives. That being this. They live on milk and meat. That's your only response? (laughs) See, if you know anything about Rome's perception of milk at that time, and why would you? But this would have made Caesar and all who were with him queasy. They live on milk and meat. Everybody there would have been disgusted, grossed out, gag reflexes kicking in because who in their right mind drank milk? You see, according to Deborah Valenise's nonfiction book, Milk, A Local and Global History, I highly recommend this very real, <laughs> tantalizing book. It's like 50 shades of dairy. You know, it's like, it's good. It's good. This book, though, shows us that for centuries, the only consumption of milk was done by babies and barbarians. No Roman citizen would touch the stuff except to make cheese. But then he goes up north, and all they're doing is drinking water's second cousin, milk. And I'm just going to preface this right now. I did heavy, heavy Googling of slang terms for milk. So if I drop them periodically throughout this teaching, I'm giving you an advance welcome. Tanner, cool? Slang terms for milk, you pumped? Get your journal out, buddy. It's why we bought them for you. So here we go. Cool ways of saying milk. Santa's delight. Livestock soup. Just to get you guys ready. But when I I first read this little narrative about milk from this book, I will admit, Julius, Caesar, who cares? Like milk, we've all had it. We've all had milk. But then I did start to think how out of sorts it is for mature, grown adults to drink milk. My wife was pointing out on the way here today that we drink what was meant for other animals' babies. Like, we're stealing other animals' babies' milk. It's really gross. Does anybody want to admit the last time they had a warm glass of liquid ivory? There's another one. Anybody want to admit it? The last time? Who in here wants to admit? See, emotional vulnerability. Nobody's doing it. Warm milk? Yeah, maybe no. Or how about this? When was the last time? Think about this. If you don't think I've proven my point yet, the milk is awkward. How about this? When was the last time you were at a, out at a steakhouse or a fancy meal and, you, and the server comes over and he says, what can I get you to drink? And you said, mmm, a pint of your finest cattle wine. Mmm. <laughs> Heavens no. They would look at you like you just ordered cat meat. Nobody's ordering milk at a steakhouse. And that troubled Troubled disposition, even with Julius Caesar, is seen in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. There is a queasiness. The stranger, that being who we're calling this unknown, eccentric, mysterious author, and this transcribed sermon that is Hebrews, he cries out, you adults should not be drinking milk. That's what he's saying. Why are you drinking milk, you adults? Now, obviously, this is metaphorical, but it comes across clear and it comes across brutal. This is brutal verses. You see, if you've been with us, you'll notice that the book of Hebrews hasn't come out and said it quite yet, but the stranger, the author, has implied that there is something wrong. 
there's something radically wrong. There's something wrong with the Christians he's speaking to do, are speaking about, and, and today, the commentators call this chapter, chapter five, the author's sigh. Ugh. He's sighing that their spiritual adults are in need of spiritual baby food, spiritual milk. This isn't right. Now, if you think about it, the only time that happens with actual food for adults to need baby food or milk is when an adult is sick. When something is wrong with the inward parts, which is exactly what we've been seeing for the last five chapters of the book of Hebrews. Chapter two says this. I'm just going to kind of rattle these off. Chapter two has words like, pay close attention to the message you've heard, lest you drift away. Chapter three has words like, consider Jesus. Don't harden your hearts. Take care lest you have an evil uh, heart of unbelief. Chapter four has words like, fear lest you fall. Be diligent lest you fall by disobedience. It says, hold fast. These are not the type of things that people say to someone who is healthy, who is fixated in their spiritual adulthood. But before we go on, before we go on, um, and, and, and you don't really have to say it, but I'd be curious, you don't have to say it out loud, but I would be curious if anybody here has seen or knows why they're sick. You don't have to yell it out loud, but has anybody really come up with the idea that there's something wrong, but what is it? Why are they addicted to cow juice? You know, it's interesting because if you've noticed until now, Hebrews has only given the cure and the symptoms. If you've tracked so far, it only's given the cure and the symptoms. Never has it yet in five chapters given the diagnosis the original Jewish audience is considering going back into Judaism to escape persecution from the countrymen and abandoning Christianity. They're thinking about abandoning Christianity. It's probably not too far-fetched to think that some here today are considering abandoning Christianity. But nonetheless, that still doesn't give us the readers a resolve of what's happened to their inward parts. Well, you'll be happy to know today that all of that changed. All that changes. Today we get the full report. Now before I lay it on you, I just want everybody to sort of sit with this just for a moment that Hebrews chapter five is off. It's odd. You can put a little asterisk next to this chapter because it doesn't fit. Chapter five really should not be here. There's this great moment in Hitchcock's film from 40s, I believe, called The Foreign Correspondent. Anybody seen it? RJ, that's it, dude. Yes, it's RJ, proud. It's a great movie, right? It's a good movie. But here's the thing. There's this great scene where, where the wind is firmly blowing and this man's hat just gets completely blown off and he's running after his hat. And as he catches his hat and he looks up to this windmill, he sees something chilling. And that's the windmill stop blowing in the wind's direction and start blowing the other way and the opposite direction of the wind. That is Hebrews chapter five. It is a windmill which blows against the wind. A windmill which is being gusted towards one way, like what we talked about last week, high priest theology, Jesus is our great high priest. And rather than moving full steam ahead, full wind ahead, the stranger just completely changes course. So this chapter and these next chapter six are very, very odd. So much so that, that some New Testament scholars say that shame on the stranger. New Testament scholars go, the writer of Hebrews, shame on him for writing like this. Look how immature he writes. He has the, you know, the attention span of a moth. But that's just to read Hebrews chapter five and six very professionally and not personally. See, with all these great admonishments, 
we know our author is really concerned about his church. He loves his church and it breaks him to see that they're sick. So he says, before we walk on to talk about Jesus as a high priest, he goes, I want to stop and I want to talk about you. Before we talk about Jesus as priest, I want to talk about you, Hebrews 5 implies. So look at verse 11. If we slow down, we can hear his anguish. We can hear his pastor's heart. Verse 11. And he goes, about this, the theology of a high priest, we have much to say and it's hard to explain. So he's sighing. He goes, I just can't slip into the stuff because, and look what he says. You, in verse 11, have become dull of hearing. That's why they're sick. This is the diagnosis. It's because they're drinking utter honey. They're dull of hearing. I'm going to keep slipping them in just for you guys. This word dull means slothful. It means lazy. It means stupid. It means arrested development. Because this description is sluggish. This is what this word means. When you hear dull of hearing, he just says, you're slugs. So he's harsh. I love this church, but you're spiritual slugs, he says. At one time, did you guys notice that? It says, you have become. So it says, you have become, and it implies a deterioration. Did you notice that in the verse? You have become. This is far worse. The thought is that you had at one time been alert and passionate and interested, and you haven't always drank milk. You used to eat solid food. And he goes, you are dull of hearing, you are slugs because of three reasons. He gives three symptoms why you are sick. So we're going to go over these kind of quickly, but I think this will help sort of flesh it out. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracle. So number one is this is a symptom of why they're sluggish, why they're dull of hearing, why they're sick, is they can't communicate truth. It's the inability to communicate truth. Again, by this time shows us that a proper passage of time has gone by in their Christian faith where you should be able to talk about God's oracles, which is like Old Testament revelations, Old Testament purposes. That's what that means. Enough time has passed that you should be able to communicate this. But let's also just slow our roll here for a moment. There is a massive assumption with these verses, is there not? A massive assumption with these words. And the assumption is what? That you should be teachers. That I should be teaching. It assumes us ability to be able to communicate God's word. Now, does that mean that everybody in here has to be able to preach a sermon, even though Bob like really wants to, apparently, wherever Bob's at? <laughs> you can take it, Bob. It's yours, bro. Does that mean we have to be able to preach a sermon or teach Old, Old Testament survey classes or Billy Graham our way through life? No. That's not what that means. Not all teachers use pulpits. So it's not like having or desiring or teaching position or filling one, but there's an expectation of enough growth for the church that we can share externally what we know internally. That's an expectation on every Christian, according to the stranger, according to the Bible. Number two, this is why you're sick, this is why you have symptoms, this is why you're dull of hearing, he says, is number two, you need milk. You need milk. They can't, they have the inability to digest truth. They can't digest it. They can't digest meat. But let me just say this. If you're new, this is good. This is important. 
If you're new to Christianity or you're new to taking Christianity seriously, please do not feel pressured by my words or the words of Hebrews. Enjoy the milk. Enjoy the milk, but with aim and diligence to head towards solid food. So if you just started following Jesus last week and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I've got to eat all of this theological beef. No, no, no. Enjoy the milk. But with aim and diligence to head that way, okay? Then third, the inability, verse 13, to apply truth is the third symptom. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, is unskilled in the word of righteousness, righteousness since he is a child. Now, someone may object that I have been using this metaphor as a disease, and the author's using it as infants or child. So yes, possibly I'm taking some liberties here with the metaphor, but we would all recognize that anybody who has the ability to eat solid food and chooses to be fed by a bottle, there is an issue. There is an issue, an issue of spirituality, and that would be the ability to communicate, digest, or apply. So what the stranger is saying is you can't handle the truth. I've been waiting 45 years to say that from a pulpit. I literally put here on my notes, millennials probably won't get it. That's what I like. But apparently you do. So Jack Nicholson, if you want, oh my gosh. If you want a perfect image of what the stranger looks like, look at Jack Nicholson. He is the author of this book. Man, that's so helpful for me. <laughs> Saying you cannot handle the truth, hence dull of hearing spiritual, spiritual slugs. But let's connect the dots because this is crazy. This is straight Willy Wonka right now. Let's connect the dots. Are you, con- are you, are you, are you connecting with what he is processing? Are you tracking with his process? Because it is saying that to be sluggish in our Christian life, slothful in this Christian life is the first sign, first indication of abandoning the faith. Whoa, whoa, Jack Nicholson, stranger, slow your roll, dude. You would think murder, hate, anger would be the first indication of abandoning the faith. But no, sluggishness is. To be a spiritual slugs, how is that possible? Well, dull of hearing, let me explain, dull of hearing isn't a lack of intelligence on the recipients. They're smart people. What he's saying, when he says this is hard to explain, it's not because Melchizedek is really hard to understand. It's a little bit hard to understand. But not because it's super hard to understand. Again, good luck, Pastor Isaac, in a couple weeks. It's not because of that. It's not so theologically stretching. It's because they're dull of hearing. But nor is dull of hearing, that doesn't also mean deaf. Did we notice that? They're still listening. It doesn't mean deaf. This is a matter of the heart he's talking about. To be dull of hearing is a matter of the heart. To be sluggish isn't you don't understand. To be sluggish is you don't want to understand. That's the issue. I feel so bad, my poor wife, wherever she may be, my poor wife has been begging me for about 22 years to help her clean out the garage. Oh, mama, do I not want to do that? It is, and, and, and yesterday she said, we're going, we're going outside and doing it, and I was so bitter. Guess how I acted the whole time. I don't want to do this stupid garage. 
The entire time, you want to pick, I was picking up one thing at a time. She's picking up five boxes at a time, moving our car like this somehow. And I'm over going, this is stupid. This is so stupid. The entire time for four hours or whatever it was, I was being sluggish. Not because I knew that we shouldn't clean out the garage, but because I didn't want to clean out the garage. See, for the Hebrews, there was no more push. There was no more drive in their spiritual life. Grown beings satisfied with spiritual apathy. Lord, I don't care. Jesus, I do not care. I do not care about the church. I do not care about discipleship. I don't care about each other. I'm over it. Spiritual apathy. So that dole of hearing is basically slide me another glass of breakfast broth. You know, there's another one. Just so you know. Is there anybody here dole of hearing? Is there anybody here sluggish? Anybody here spiritually sluggish, spiritually apathetic? Because if so, the Bible would say, beware. The book of Hebrews says that that is to start the ignition of complete faith deterioration. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature. And 6.1 says, therefore, what's our rules about therefore? Andre, you remember? What is it there for? Good job. More treasures in heaven, pal. What is it there for? And then he says, let us leave this elementary doctrine of Christ and go on into maturity. Then ultimately, he kind of gives this weird random list. If you guys read the verses... And some of the stuff's going to be covered later, but he gives a really random list of things that they're kind of caught up on or they're not moving onwards. I'll just read it real quickly. It's six things, three, you know, three sets of pairs. He goes, repentance from dead works, and six, one, in a faith toward God. And then verse two, instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Then he goes, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Essentially, these are the most basic, bare minimum things you need to know about. He's saying Christianity or faith or Judaism in general is what he's getting at. The bare bones for you guys to hold a conversation at like a church thing. The bare bones that God has spoken, the bare bones that God has revealed himself in Jesus, the bare bones that God is trustworthy. This is what they couldn't move on about. And the author as their pastor has to keep explaining it over and over. He's exhausted. Look at, he says, not laying again a foundation. See, imagine homeowners going, let's put carpet down and then put hardwood on that carpet. And let's put concrete down. They'll put tile on top. Like, All right, let's put that down. And then just put more on this down. The super, the contractor, you know, the, the, whatever the Bible is saying, we're not going to keep putting foundation upon a foundation. We don't have to keep doing this. We don't have to keep dialoguing about this. We need to be carried on into maturity. This is important if you want to write this down. The need is to not rebuild fundamentals, but to stand on them. So they're outside this house saying, no, lay down more tile and now do hardwood on top of that. And the stranger's like, just go in there and live in it. Just go in there and stand on it. They need to learn how to take basic gospel truths about Jesus and how to use it in discerning what is good and what is evil, what is right and what is wrong. But it's here, I just want to sort of be really, really careful. I'm assuming many of us 
are here at Playa Studios in Culver City because we want to grow up into spiritual adulthood. And many of us have made our gatherings a priority because we know that this is part of the maturing growth process. Sitting under the teaching of God's word, discipleship groups, praying with one another, this is important. But just so it's clear, because these verses can be tricky, nowhere, nowhere, nowhere is intellect or a knowing equate maturity. Nowhere. There is a dark shadow that has run across the idea of spiritual maturity, that being a subtle, slithering lie, which is basically, because I know a thing, I am that thing. That is dangerous. Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 isn't suggesting we're mature by us eating, again, theological pork or theological ham. His remedy isn't, you guys are so childish. You guys should read the Bible harder. You guys should go to church more. You guys should have a certain level of biblical literacy. You guys should go to seminary. Thank heavens that is not his remedy. Yes, Revelation is where we start, but that is not where we're made complete. But yet this is the pitfall for Christians in this church and other churches. To think I'm mature because I have been a Christian for X number of years. To think I'm mature because I hold 46 degrees in biblical theology. No, no. We could have theological, biblical knowledge the size of a mountain, but a maturity level the size of an anthill. The original Hebrew audience is a perfect, perfect, perfect example of this. That just because they have a certain idea doesn't mean they are submitted to that idea. That's our author's issue. It's not that you want basic truths, it's that you aren't even living by them. So for us, just because we know repentance from dead works towards faith towards God doesn't mean we're submitted to it. Think of Adam and Eve. I'm going to give two probably just real small examples. Think of Adam and Eve. Everybody here knows who Adam and Eve are. They did not disobey God because they were intellectually ignorant of God's words, of God's commands. They knowingly stepped over God's threshold because they wanted to be God themselves. So the war in Eden was fought on, fought on the turf of apathetic hearts. They knew what God wanted and they said, nah. Consider King David. If you've been following Jesus for a while, many of you know who King David is. Old Testament, spiritual giant, a man of God. Many would have considered one of the most elite, mature Christians in all of the Bible. And yet towards the end of his life, adultery rotted his bones. But yet, he did not claim Bathsheba, his mistress, because all of a sudden he was naive to God's prohibitions against adultery and murder. Oh, what? You're against us, God? No, no, no. At some point, King David acted because he just did not care what God wanted, making him unable to discern good and evil. See how that ties together? Those are two, again, small examples of incredible people who understood incredible truths and yet did not live like it. That collective church is slug-like. That collective church is dull to no longer care about what God cares about. Is, is any of this ringing true with people here? Christian writer Watchman Nee says, 
never adopt an attitude of indifference. For if you do, you will suffer for it. The weight will grow heavier and heavier. Are we seeing why the stranger, the author's windmill changes direction? Because he needs to pastorally confront this growing, heavy, suffering weight. Their apathy, their immaturity, their suffering. And it is a beautiful but heavy confrontation. And I can fully appreciate as a pastor at Collective Church, listening to another pastor lovingly confront his church. He speaks so freely with so much liberty. I mean, it is a straightforward manner and the stranger is modeling loving confrontation. Holy smokes. Does the church need the liberty to be able to be priests like we saw last week? So this is a horrible soundbite, but you're all gonna get it. But this is a horrible soundbite. But may we be a church of confrontation. May we be a church of confrontation. If you are here and you have been lovingly confronted by another person at this church or by me or by another pastor to spurn you on towards maturity, it is because you are truly and deeply loved. I'm not saying everybody does it perfect. So I'm caveat of lovely, loving confrontation. Something Collective Church has strived and hoped to be from the start of our existence was a community of truth-tellers, of truth-telling. Now, I know that isn't really spoken of in this text, but it surely is spotlighted and modeled. See, if this church is healthy, Collective Church, if this church is healthy, if this church wants to go on into maturity, we will hear about, experience, and enact loving confrontation with one another. The two, maturity and truth-telling, go hand in hand. Another book in the New Testament says this. Just let this word sit with you from Ephesians chapter four. Verse 13. Look at all these connections to Hebrews five and six. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be what? Children, babies, infants, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Verse 15, this is to the church, rather speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's us, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped when each part, each person, is working properly. It makes the body grow so that it built itself up in what? Knowledge? So that it built itself what up? Good music? Good preaching? What? In love. In love. I kind of, sitting with this, I just love Hebrews 5. The stranger acknowledges, you want milk? You want broken ice cream? Like, that's what you want? You want that stuff? You desire to be taught the basics, but yet look, look what our author does. He goes, okay, fine. Does he get out their bibs? Does he give them a bottle? Does he put them in a high chair? No. He says, you want this, but no. He places them at the adult table where there's a mature menu with a mature appetite. This is something so profound. It's one thing to give infants a giant cup of beef and say, eat, kiddos. It is another thing to give an adult who prefers to be nursed 
who prefers to be nerfed a slap of B and say, no, it's time for you now to move on. It's time for you now to mature. What an exhortation and a warning for us that enough times, I mean, enough is enough where we just feel like, I don't feel like doing this. Hebrews has a heavy word for us. It's high time, the stranger says, that we start acting like a spiritual adult and living life maturely. And in the church, in this Christian life, that could be a myriad of components. I obviously, I don't know where everybody's at. For some in this room, to mature and high time to start acting like a spiritual adult, for some of us, it could just be, you know what, I'm no longer going to consume for my church. It also could be, I'm going to play my part in discipling people. I'm going to play my part in priestly roles like we saw last week. I'm going to engage with people. For others, that could be, I'm going to take discipleship seriously. I'm going to seek out spiritual partnership. For others, that could be just simply, I'm going to start loving my wife as Christ loves the church. For others, others that could be opening the Bible between Sunday and Sunday. For others, that could be seeking health in areas of addictions and lust and finances and relationships. For others, it just could be loving enemies and forgiving people. Tie time. The stranger says, uh, Pastor John Orberg, pastor here in California, he had the opportunity to sit down with one of the sharpest minds in all of Christian academia and the Christian faith, and that was Dallas Willard. And he asked him before his death, how do you become, how does one become spiritually mature? Right? This is what we're wanting. Right here, then we're getting to the good stuff. Give me the recipe, Willard. I know you got it. Like, give it to me. Is it about some secret knowledge, some secret sauce? Is it about a lab-tested process? Is it about reading your Bible for four hours instead of three hours? What is it? Dallas Willard responded. He goes, the divine curriculum, this is what he's talking about for spiritual maturity, is the trials of ordinary existence. That's what he says. We grow by welcoming God into the everyday challenges of life and facing our sufferings from his perspective with his grace. You see, the original meaning of that phrase, constant practice in verse 14, translates as the ability to live rightly when confronted with challenging decisions. It is not the opposite. Isn't that not the opposite of what the Hebrews are doing? Living rightly in front of challenging decisions? You think, if you thought about it, if you could define how culture would define maturity, I think a lot of it would be a coming of age where we are a sovereign self, or I think our culture would define maturity by making decisions of our own fates and our own destiny. Yeah, that, that person's mature. Look at them, go for it. It's a lane of our own path. That's maturity. But when that mentality is brought into godly maturity, it has the opposite effect. To think that, yes, look at that sovereign self. He's making his own path. When that's brought into spiritual maturity, it actually exposes immaturity. It exposes the need for milk. It's the reverse, almost. See, maturity, the way of Jesus, is something completely different. And I'll be the first to admit, spiritual maturity is a bit muddy. I looked long and hard from church fathers to present-day pastors to preachers to find a really, really solid, solid answer of just a definition. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. Is Christian maturity about knowing the word of God? Yes and no. Is Christian maturity about changing our behavior? Yes and no. 
the best we can do for such a broad topic is rest on the definition that I believe is that Christian maturity, spiritual maturity, is being led. I know that may feel inept, but it's being led. Dutch priest Henry Nouwen will help fill what that means out. He says, Nouwen says, spiritual maturity is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. Is being led to. If that's where you're leading for me to have a greater emphasis on discipleship in my life, I will follow. If that's where you're interested for me to love my spouse a certain way, I will follow. If that's what, how awkward it is to go and talk to these people, to make these relationships, to ask for forgiveness, if you're leading me there, I will follow. Being led to the uncomfortables. Now, I have no idea what that might be for you today, but you do have to answer it. And I would encourage you to do it today. And I'll end with this. I think it's really, I'm really doing a, a massive injustice to the book of Hebrews, just so you know, by, by us taking months to go over it. This is supposed to be read like a sermon in like 30 minutes. That's what Hebrews really should be. And we're taking months and months to go over it. Because if we heard it actually like a sermon, what we'd remember is that these people, these Hebrews, this original audience, they're lost because they've lost sight of Jesus. They are not allowing themselves to be led. That is why the stranger, the author, is consistently and constantly reminding them who Jesus is. You've lost sight of Jesus. The stranger is like shaking in their shoulders saying, Jesus used to be your supreme everything. Jesus used to be your treasure, your chief joy, your love. And now you're dull of hearing because your love is dull. You don't want to follow. I think if we can make that relevant to our church or our culture, I think a lot of what that looks like is you are following Jesus. You are saying, I'll take Jesus. You are being led by Jesus if... Jesus helps my marriage. I will be led by Jesus if it brings me a man. I will be led by Jesus if you hook me up, God. I will be led by Jesus if you rectify this circumstance. And when that doesn't happen, Christ is all of a sudden this betrayer because he didn't give what he never promised to give. So why do I say all of that? Because when tragedy strikes, like it does for the Hebrews, like it did for them, and like it will do for us, when we lose our health, when we've lost a loved one, when our account dries up, and when we're rejected, our identity gets shaken, and our hopes get rattled. Hence, we lose sight. And immature children and babies run. They see the hard circumstances, they see the scary circumstances, and they go, I am out. You ever seen a children in a scary haunted house? They're bolting the whole way through. But mature people, they enter where they need to. They are led and they follow. Spiritual maturity is the ability and willingness to be led where you would not rather go. Would you, where you would not rather go. Hebrews has been telling us if Christ and love for him is supreme, then every single circumstances, whether good or bad, is a path towards him. So what might be those places you need to be led to today where you need to enter, those places that we need to be? Let's pray and ask the Lord.